Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. So today what I'd like to do is I'd like to share a vision with you, a vision of how we can be advancing the culture of life in, I think, a number of different ways. Now, before I do that, I want to really thank Franciscan University Students for Life for this series. I mean, the the culture of life in your vocation. I think it's a great idea. When we're looking at different disciplines, biology, philosophy, sociology, history, and asking how can the culture of life be advanced in those particular disciplines? How can, in each of our specific vocations, we be advancing the culture of life? I think this is a question that a lot of us are called to be asking ourselves. And we should be looking for what the answers are to that question. Now, I want to I share one reason why I'm, I'm, I, I'm kind of inspired by th- this question, this idea of, how to advance the culture of life in your vocation. I'm inspired in part uh, by the Bible. Now, I know this is supposed to, I'm, 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 I teach in the biology department, so maybe I'm supposed to focus on biology, but I'm going to do a little theology here. Uh, please excuse me. Uh, now, in the Bible, there's this book you may have heard of. Maybe you've heard of the Bible. Uh, <laughs> In the Bible, in Matthew 16, 18, it says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. Now, I've been really inspired by this passage. Now, I think a lot of people, when they hear this passage, one of the things that they think of is they think, okay, it's saying the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against the church. So what that means is that the church cannot fall into error that when the netherworld attacks the church, it cannot fall. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But I've also heard another interpretation by a gentleman you may have heard of. I I believe his name is Scott Hahn. Maybe one or two of you know about him. Uh, And one thing that he notes is, okay, if it's the church that is being attacked, that would suggest that the netherworld was attacking the gates of the church, like the church is a castle and its gates are being attacked. But in this passage, it says, the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against the church. That suggests that the netherworld is a castle with gates. And it's the church that is going to the netherworld, tearing down the gates. I think a lot of people, when they they think of pro-life issues, they think that we need to figure out how to defend the culture of life. But once again, taking inspiration out of this passage, I think not only, we need to defend the culture of life, but not only do we have to do that, we have to go farther. We have to figure out how can we go on the attack? How can we take the culture of life on the offensive and tear down the gates in this particular area? And I think the culture of life is one area where a lot of us, once again, are called to be tearing down the gates of the netherworld. Now, what I want to do in this talk is start off with a few kind of general principles on, I I think, almost visions on how we should be looking at this, how we should be thinking about this. And then I want to look at some more specific ways 
that we could apply these ideas. So first off, some general ideas. Number one, I think all of us need to seek our calling and try to follow it. Whatever that is, whatever the Lord is calling us to. And I think that a lot of us, if we listen carefully, and especially a lot in this room right now, are called to be soldiers in the culture of life in some way. Now, for those who are, say, in biology, science, medical majors in particular, or just like biology in some way, uh, I think there are a few of you in here, uh, I think one thing that you have to ask yourself is, when you're, in, when you're in a class, when you're learning something about biology, in the back of your mind should be the question, how does this apply to the culture of life? Okay, does it apply? Can I use these concepts? Can I use these principles? Can I extend them to help advance the culture of life or defend it? And then I think for people in other majors, things like theology, philosophy, other majors, let's say you don't like biology at all. Well, sometimes I think that there are questions that come up that maybe seem like purely philosophical questions. One, one example that I, I hope to get to later is a uh, question such as, th th there are some people who argue that the early embryo for a couple of days isn't a human being because it can undergo twinning. And if you can get two organisms out of this, it can't possibly be one in the first place. Now there are, I think, ways of arguing against that that are almost purely philosophical, but biological data would help a lot in this. And in fact, I think that there are some experiments that we could do to really provide strong ammunition against that argument, and I'll get into that later. So I think that people in non-biology majors, people who don't like biology as much, one thing they should be doing is asking themselves, how does biology interact with these questions? Is there something within biology where a deeper understanding of biology could help me advance the culture of life by strengthening this argument. Is there some experiment I should be finding my biology major friend and saying, do this experiment at some point, find or, or find somebody who can, so that we can really, really nail down this argument once and for all in a way that is unanswerable. Okay, and I'll, I'll try to look at ways to, uh, examples of this. So one example I'll, I'll give in, uh, in my own life where I've done this type of thing. I, I was in a, a biological science and I went to Georgia Tech for biomedical engineering and I did stem cell research, okay, with adult stem cells. And before I got into the program, I had read different things in news media about stem cells and I heard about these embryonic stem cells that require killing human beings. And I heard how scientists were really excited about them and there was so much scientific research being done on that. Well, I wanted, I, I was a little skeptical of that. So I knew that when I went into a program where there was a lot of stem cell research, that one thing that I needed to do is I needed to look around and look for opportunities to understand this better and see, are a lot of scientists working with embryonic stem cells? The answer was no. And are, are these scientists, do they think that human embryonic stem cells are the best type? And the answer, once again, was no, even for those who didn't, uh, who didn't have any moral issues with human embryonic stem cells. And now I use that in my classes. And now I try to share that with other people. And I think that that kind of thing is something that all of us 
should be looking for and trying to do. Now, let me give a few examples of this. First off, uh, the, most, the most obvious way that I believe biology and the culture of life interact in, and biology can help in the culture of life is for pro-life apologetics. A lot of the big challenges in the culture of life today are very related to biology, whether it's abortion or embryonic stem cell research or euthanasia. Understanding the biology and understanding it well, I think is key, is essential to answering these types of questions. Now, there are a lot of people doing work in those areas, and I think that's great. Uh, one place that there's work being done where I think we need more work done is the question of when does human life begin from a scientific perspective? Okay, the, the, right now I believe the pro-life arguments for why human life begins at fertilization are a lot stronger than the pro-choice arguments, but there needs a, to be a lot more development. And I'm sorry, I, I don't wanna hint, I don't wanna say focus on any one point because there are a lot of general points I, I wanna make and if you have any questions about that, then please talk to me at the end. Now, that, that's the most obvious place. I think a lot of people are working in pro-life apologetics using biology in that way. But I wanna look at some more, or, or some other ways that are maybe less obvious. One way, one place is in the family. I think a lot of people in here, maybe everyone in here, or close to everyone in here, is called to, it will, for people who are called to be parents one day, one thing that I think a lot of people in this room are called to is to share pro-life values and share pro-life ideas and share the pro-life philosophy with their children, okay? Teach the kids pro-life, about pro-life issues. Now, how do you do this? I think there are a number of ways. First off, let, let's say that we have parents who decide to homeschool their children. Well, I think one thing those parents should think about is maybe at a certain age, actually have a unit, a homeschooling unit on pro-life issues. Including, pro, including things rooted in biology. And then have discussions about this around the dinner table and really try to help the child to develop their understanding and philosophy within these issues. Now let's say we have parents that aren't homeschooling, that aren't directly schooling their children uh, in that particular way. Well, I, I still think that parents who are sending their children to public or private schools have a certain responsibility to teach their children. And maybe it's too much to have a pro-life unit during the school year, but maybe during the summer. The parents have a pro-life unit with the children. They put together some material. Or maybe they tell their children, I want you to read these three pro-life books this summer and write a summary of, and you need to write a summary of each chapter or an essay on what the main argument of the book is. And then at the dinner table, next time we have dinner, you actually have to tell us what the book was about, and we'll have a discussion about it. Okay, I think that we need to be looking for these ways to integrate this into our teaching of children. Now, I think that that's just the start, though, and I think that, once again, we have to have broad visions. Okay, and we have to look at how can we extend these things as far as they can go. So let's say that you're a person who is homeschooling the children, you've developed your own pro-life curriculum that incorporates biology, philosophy, theology, law, medicine, a number of different topics, all into this pro-life unit. Well, I think you need to ask yourself at that point, could you be called to make this a formal curriculum that now everybody 
that, that, now, that now that you share so that others can see it. I've looked for pro-life curricula out, out there and most of them, the, the, there are some that might be okay. I, I haven't looked at them very carefully, but most of them seem to be primary theologic, primarily theological. And I think it's great to put the theology into our understanding of pro-life issues. But if that's where we stop, well, that I think is very far from where we need to go to interact with our culture in a strong way and advance the culture of life. So someone in here might be called to develop a pro-life curriculum, okay? And then maybe you try to get it in, out into a homeschool community. Or maybe you try to get it out in a Catholic school. I suggest that you find the easiest way that you might be able to get this curriculum more widely adopted and start there. Now this is something that I, I actually would like to do myself, but I have a lot of projects on my list that are just like this, and I can't do them all, at least not in just a couple years. Okay, this is on my 30-year plan or so. So if it gets to 30 years and this is still on my list, and no one else has done it, then I will probably do this. But if one of you would like to, maybe you'd like, maybe you feel, maybe you're in education and you'd like to do a lot of the work to make this happen, then I'd love to work with you if you want some help on this. Another, another example of where I think we can be advancing the culture of life related to biology is putting the sexual union in its proper context. I think one of the challenges that we have in the culture of life right now is the way that people look at the sexual union. There are curricula in schools now, and I think there are a couple different types of curricula. One type of uh, sex education in schools looks at sex as if it's basically meaningless. It's a casual thing. If you want to have sex with someone, that's fine, you know, as long as you care about them and everyone consents, that's cool. If you want to play tennis tomorrow, if you want to have sex tomorrow, you know, either way, it's pretty much the same, you know, it's casual, all right? Uh, you don't need to wear a tie while doing that, okay? It's, 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 it's not, it doesn't have a deep meaning to it. Well, I, I think that there's a deep issue with this. Okay, and, and, and one, one, of the, uh, one of the problems that it's caused, one of the ways that it interacts with the culture of life is, to illustrate this, I actually want to cite an example by a, a Catholic blogger named Jennifer Fulweiler. She's actually a convert to the Catholic faith from atheism. And she explains it kind of like this. For a long time in all of human history, there were two lists. One list was a list of uh, reasons that, times when it's okay to have sex. And then on the other list was the, the times when it's okay to have a baby. And for the vast majority of human history, these two lists were the same list. The, reason, the times when it's okay to have a baby, the times when it's okay to have sex. Now when that happens, if somebody comes, if two people come together in sexual union, and then there's a surprise conception, they think of it as a surprise because they know that those two lists are the same. But if you have people who think, who, are, who have been educated in a certain type of sex education, that sex is a casual thing, it doesn't have as deep of a meaning, it's not connected to children, then the one list that says, when is it okay to have sex, is different from the other list that asks, when is it okay to have children? 
And now, if those two lists don't match up, then you can get people who have sex but don't feel like this is an okay to have children, okay time to have children, and what happens? Well, now this is an emergency. Now, this is a huge problem. And now abortion becomes a huge temptation, at the very least. So I think that's one vision. Now, within the sex education curriculum right now, at least the, the ones that I've seen, maybe there are better ones out there, but I, the, the other vision that I've seen, I think also has its problems. Because this, this vision, well, this vision was one that I had for a long time. For a long time, what I thought, what I, what I got out of sex education was, whatever you do, don't have sex before marriage. It was a big no. And it gave me this impression, because it kind of stopped there, it gave me this impression that the most dirty, terrible, horrible, disgusting that thing that you could ever do was have sex with someone, so you better save that for the one person you love the most. Now, that's kind of an odd vision. If this is a terrible thing, I mean, didn't God make us? How can he have made this horrible thing called sex, and yet he's, he calls us to holiness? And if this is such a terrible thing, how, why we, we share it with the one person we love the most? Well, I think one of the things that was amazing to me was eventually, by studying the theology of the body, I started to get a new conception. I started to see more what the church actually taught didn't teach that sex was a dirty, horrible, terrible, disgusting thing. It taught that the sexual union was holy, that our bodies were good, inherently good things, and that therefore the sexual union wasn't a casual thing. It wasn't a dirty thing. It was a highly meaningful and holy thing. And when you have something that's very meaningful and holy, it's very important how you do that and in what context. You take something else that's meaningful and holy, uh, that, that's even less important than any human being or, or an act that could create a human being, like maybe the chalice that holds the precious blood of our Lord. That's a very holy thing. Let's say you took that and poured some apple juice in it and then drank your apple juice during breakfast. Well, there would be something profoundly wrong with that, not because apple juice is dirty, not because the cup is a bad thing, but because you're using this holy thing in a way that's too casual, that's not put in the right context. And I think that we need a sex education that actually puts the sexual union in this more holy, this more meaningful context. Okay, I think that that's a vision that's very attractive. It's attractive to me, at the very least. It's changed how, I thought, how I've thought about these things. Now, I think a lot of that work comes out of theology and philosophy, but I think that biology tremendously helps this. One way that you can start to see the meaning by studying biology, for example, is by just looking at the reproductive systems and realizing that there are some really odd things about the reproductive systems. Let me put this into this in, in, in context in this way. Let's say I asked you, how many digestive systems do you have? I think the answer is one. You have one digestive system. It allows you to take food, process it, absorb it into your blood vessels. It, is used to get food nutrients, one digestive system. Now let's say, what about how many cardiovascular systems do you have? One cardiovascular system, I think would be the correct answer. It pumps blood throughout your body, transports nutrients, uh, distributes oxygen, just like it's supposed to do. Now, if we ask though, how many reproductive systems do you have? 
I think the real answer is less than one. Because guess what? With your reproductive system, you can't reproduce. At least not with yours alone. Okay? If all we had were, say, males or females just on this earth, and that was it, and that's all we had to study, we would think, what is all, okay, cardiovascular system makes sense, digestive system makes sense, what's going on with this reproductive system? What it does is it creates cells that die and do nothing else, okay? <laughs> it, would, it would just seem, it would seem very odd. What the heck is happening? This would make no sense. Your reproductive system, to a certain extent, makes no sense until it's joined with another person's reproductive system. And then for the first time, you have one shared reproductive system that actually works and achieves its function. Okay? Now, if we have this system that only really makes sense even as a system in the context of someone else, well, I think that, that, that that's something that suggests that there is this deep meaning to it. And if we see that the system only works and it works for reproduction, I think that that really connects the sexual union to reproduction. So once again, I think that this is an area where we should be taking the biology and uniting it and deepening our understanding of biology. Okay? The more I understand the, about the reproductive system, the more holy, the more meaningful the sexual union seems. The more it seems like these, this male and female were very much meant to be united in this way. Okay? In fact, I think that's one of the reasons, I think it's maybe a major, the major reason why when the couples come together in conjugal union, the church calls that the one flesh union. Because now these two distinct things become one thing. So bringing this all together, bring, bring that part together, I think one thing is that we have to do, that somebody has to do, I'm hoping one of you will do it because then I wouldn't have to. Uh, one thing, another thing that I think we have to do is look at how can we develop a sex ed curriculum that brings this all together, that puts the meaningfulness, that puts the biology back into the sexual union and puts it in its proper context. And once someone has developed that, then let's start sharing it in the homeschool community. Let's start sharing it in Catholic schools. And then let's eventually bring it to other public and private schools. I think these are visions, these are goals that we need to be having. And especially if people in this room don't have it, then who's gonna have these visions? Who's going to be working on this? Okay, and once again, if somebody wants to work on this project and do most of the work, then, and, and you want some help pushing it forward, let me know, and I'll do what I can to help you. Another example of this, okay, so that's within family life. I think also, especially those going into medical professions, they're called, to some extent, to renew reproductive health care. Right now, the words reproductive health care are often used as a synonym for abortion. So one of our first tasks, I think, is taking back that language and, and really understanding what is healthcare. Well, it's caring for your health. Okay, reproductive healthcare would be helping your reproductive system to work better. Does abortion do that? No, it doesn't help the reproductive system to work better. In fact, inherently, it's making the reproductive system work worse because this reproductive system that was trying to result in reproduction it's now been stopped. We've actually destroyed the reproductive system. It should be called reproductive health destruction. 
all right? Not reproductive health care. So I think first we, we need to be understanding these terms a little bit better and figuring out how can we apply this. But then also, there are a lot of challenges right now in reproductive health care in other areas that I think pro-lifers, people who want to advance the culture of life, are called to push forward. Another example is ectopic pregnancy. So in a normal pregnancy, a little one grows inside the womb in this particular place in the womb. In an ectopic pregnancy, the little one is growing in a place that it's not supposed to be growing, like the fallopian tubes. And if the little one continues to grow in the fallopian tubes, it can eventually burst the fallopian tubes, cause a massive blood loss that can be fatal. Now, there are solutions to prevent that potential fatal event, but generally, they result in the death of this early human organism, of this young human organism. Now, no one, now, right now in healthcare, I think the general attitude is we have good solutions to ectopic pregnancy. And there really is no research being done on how can we find a way to save not only the mother's life, but the little one's life as well. Okay? There was actually a paper a hundred years ago where they successfully transferred the embryo from a uterine tube, from the fallopian tube, to the womb. And both the mother and the child survive. And yet, after a hundred years of development in medicine, there's been almost no research on that technique. And really, there's been no research on that technique. There's been no research to try to save the human embryo. Now, that's a travesty. And all pro-lifers should have a problem with that. Any pro-lifer that has an ectopic pregnancy should at least be bothering their doctor and saying, why is there not a solution that saves this little one? And those in reproductive health care should be trying to find a solution to this. Maybe they're called to do research in this or work with someone that will research on this problem. Another example, miscarriage. This is where a little one, a little human being, dies while still in the womb. This is all too common. Probably everyone in this room, even if, you, if you don't, even if you don't know this, there's probably somebody that you know that has experienced the pain of a miscarriage. It's just that common. And if it's that common, then there should be a lot of research on this, right? Well, the truth is there's not. There's very little research being done on how to prevent miscarriages from happening. The current solution is basically just to accept it and then to get rid of the, the little one after it's died, to clean up the body parts. How is that a sufficient solution? The culture of life should be pushing this forward. The culture of life, people in the culture of life, when, they, when there's a miscarriage, they should be encouraging their doctors to push research forward. That solves this. People in medical professions who are in the culture of life should be looking for those solutions. Okay? We should be trying to advance this. And then, when we, and then when we do, we should take credit for that. Similar, you could say similar things with infertility too. Okay? Infertility, uh, right now a big treatment, IVF, results in the death of many, many early, uh, very uh, human beings at an early developmental stage. 
we should be finding solutions that don't require the death of human beings. There are solutions out there, and we should be developing them and promoting them to a greater extent. Okay. All right, uh, so, so that's in reproductive healthcare. Now, a last place that I want to look at is in theology and philosophy and those kinds of disciplines. How, how, how does biology interact? So I, I kind of suggested maybe there are these theological, biological, theological, philosophical questions that could be aided by biology. Okay, one example is twinning. This idea that so, some people, some, I've seen this in philosophy journals, this idea that, okay, if the embryo can twin, then it can't possibly have been one person. Okay, it, it's not actually at least one person until you're past the point where twinning can occur. Now, once again, there are theological arguments, philosophical arguments that can address that. But I think another question, I think that one thing that pro-lifers need to be thinking is, how can we use biology to determine this question even more so? For instance, here are a couple theories. Uh, it could be that, yes, there is no human being, no human organism, and then after twinning, there is a human organism. Well, maybe there's some biological data on that. I think, indeed, there is. And the biological data very clearly says there's an organism before twinning. But then I think uh, there are other possibilities. For instance, uh, with, with twinning, we could have one initial organism, organism one, and then it splits into organism one and organism two. You keep organism one, but organism two comes out of it. And it buds off of you, essentially have a new human being created. Or it could be that you have organism one, then organism one dies, you get organism two and organism three. Now, in either of these cases, if we could come up with biological data that showed either of these cases, especially that we have organism one and then it continues, that would really ruin some of these philosophical ideas even more so than they might already be ruined. And I, I think one thing that philosophers should be doing is they should be saying, what kind of biological experiment could be done to strengthen this point? And then they should go to a biologist and say, can you do this experiment? Okay, or, or how can we get this experiment done? Okay, we should be a kind of aggressive in this. Another example of this, let's say uh, the, the question of when does a new organism begin in the first place? Okay, there's a lot of theology, philosophy in that, idea, in that question. But biological data is key to answering it. Okay, there should be deeper study of that, and biologists should be encouraged to do experiments, not, not in humans, but in other animal models, to bring greater biological data to answer these questions. One other question, and I think this one is much more controversial is, and this also I think is very related to the culture of life, is the question of, do we have a soul? And what does the soul do? I think this is very related to the culture of life because if we're just material beings, okay, then how we treat our bodies may not matter any more than how you treat a rock. There's no spiritual aspect to you. But if everybody knows that we have souls, that we have these human souls, well, then I think that there, there becomes a very wide recognition, a deeper recognition, that it's very important what you do to any human being that has a soul, even the very early ones. Now, some of you might be thinking, Dr. Jurowski, we cannot prove that human beings have a soul. A soul is an immaterial thing, so you can't direct, you can't weigh it, it has no, it has no mass, it has no length, you can't measure that with science. Well, 
I think there are a couple of issues. First off, we measure a lot of things with science that we cannot measure directly, or we figure out information about a lot of things that we can't measure directly, like electrons. We figure out a lot of information about them from their effects. Now, fundamentally, if the soul has an effect on the body, then there should be some difference between a body with a soul versus a body without a soul. And therefore, there should be some way to measure that. In fact, now, now this is very controversial, I think, even among my colleagues, but I actually think we already do this to some extent. There are even experiments that, uh, and we should be looking for these experiments. For instance, when a person dies, when a human being dies, what the Catholic Church says is happening is that that's the separation of the body from the soul. And there's a lot of literature looking at how can we tell that the body has separated from the soul, or the soul has separated from the body. Well, guess what? If, we're, if we have actually figured out how to tell when the soul has separated from the body, we have figured out some, something that the soul does that it's not doing when the person is dead. So to some extent, we already have looked, we're already looking at effects of the soul and things that would be different when we look at when a person's dead. But there are other experiments that have been done too. Uh, for instance, there, there have been, uh, there's been work done where they've had, they, they've had a, a bunch of people sit and watch a, a video that was meant to arouse them. And they took these different groups and said to one group, just at a basic level, they said to one group, okay, just let whatever happens happen, and we're gonna measure your brain activity. And then to the other group, they said, okay, resist being aroused. Now, if we're just material beings, you would think that there would be the exact same brain activity because they're exposed to the exact same images. But what you see is very different areas of the brain light up depending on which group the person is in, okay? Just depending on what they're trying to do. Now that would be evidence that there is this immaterial mind, and that would also be evidence of something that the soul plays a role in, actually helping us make decisions, helping us to resist material urges if we decide to. Okay, that, that, that's actually an experiment, uh, once again, trying to find evidence for the soul. I think that philosophers, theologians, should be thinking up these experiments and then saying, biologists, why don't you stop being lazy and start doing some of these experiments and helping us to advance this culture of life, help advance the teachings of the church. Okay, so these are just some of my ideas. Uh, I hope you guys can come up with more, but I hope that your visions are, if they were that big already, that's great, but we're at least broadened in the type of things that we should be looking to try to do. Now, one last thing, a couple practical notes on this. Now, for, for people who are bio students, they, or, or in those kind of medical, bio, biological fields, or just interested in biology, I think you might have a calling to work in that type of direction, okay? Other things that you might want to do, think, consider doing to advance the culture of life is finding a pro-life group in your area and offering your biological expertise. Even if you can't go to all the meetings, say, can I, can I use my biological expertise to help you in some way? 
or looking out, or if you happen to run into some philosopher or theologian working on some philosophy of the mind or philosophy of the body issue, ask, say, could I be a resource to you? Actually trying to, trying to create those interactions. And then others, well, uh, in, in other majors, okay, you're called to do what, whatever it is in your specific vocation, but if there are things that biologists, that other people interested in biology could help with, then keep your eyes and ears open for whether you're interacting with them. And then when you find one, say, can you be my resource? Can you be my reference for these types of issues? Would you look into this? Would you research this? Could you help me in this way? And if you don't know anyone, maybe look, at, look through Facebook. Look for a Franciscan biology student on Facebook. Look for one on LinkedIn, okay? Maybe you can find one in your area. And then when you get these types of knowledge, when you, maybe when you get new ideas, uh, may, maybe it's just a, a philosophical idea to try to advance the culture of life related to biology. Things, other things that you could try to be doing is, uh, is rewriting Wikipedia articles. There are a lot of Wikipedia articles out there that kind of go against the culture of life. The, the, I just looked at one the other day, the stem cell controversy or something like that. And it had arguments for Embryo, human embryonic stem cell research, arguments against human embryonic stem cell research. And the arguments against human embryonic stem cell research were terrible and weren't the normal arguments that people make. So somebody needs to revise that article. It's on my list, but if it was on your list and you did it, that would be helpful. <laughs> okay. Another thing, uh, submitting articles to different newspapers. Okay. Uh, maybe you think, oh, I, I could put an article on what our sex education curriculum should look like. I can't put together that, but I can put an article, start getting this idea out there. Well, if you're a good writer, then maybe that's something you're called to do. Or maybe you're called to write something on twinning, or cloning, or some other aspect. Okay, start thinking, how can I use my particular skills? Now, maybe you think something like, I don't know how to write this article. Well, then talk to me. I don't know how to do it, but I can help you find the people that can help you do that. Or just take a chance. Okay? I think there's a lot of things that we have to do that are going to require chances and are going to require courage. And I think if we're going to storm the gates, we have to start doing that. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.